you would take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to James chapter 5, verses 16 through 20. This morning, James chapter 5, verses 16 through 20. This will be the last time, at least in the near future, that I will ask you to turn and, uh, with me in your copy of God's Word to the epistle of James. And so it's been a good, uh, direct conversation that James has had with us over these past months. Now, in my 825 service, or in the 825 service, I made a, a reference that I think many of you will, will get a little bit more easily than my 825 service. So, um, Paul Simon, you know who Paul Simon is, right? So, you, you don't only know who Paul Simon is, but Paul Simon is coming to the end of his touring career. I don't know if you've, you've heard about that or not. So, this is his farewell tour. And long before uh, Paul Simon saying, you can call me Al, or I'm going to Graceland, or Cecilia, or 50 ways to leave your lover, all of those kinds of things. So long before he's saying any of that, he had this uh, tall, kind of puffy-haired tenor by the name of Art Garfunkel. So you know not only Paul Simon, but you know Simon and Garfunkel. I, this is an aside, but uh, when we first lived in Birmingham, 02, 03, Simon and Garfunkel got back together. And Danielle, one of the best concerts that we went to was Simon and Garfunkel in um, Atlanta, and uh, we did lower the median age of the, of the crowd there. there. There were quite a few people like, how do you know about Simon and Garfunkel? So I love Simon and Garfunkel. And Simon and Garfunkel, they had a song early on in their uh, touring together that was called I'm an Island, I'm a Rock, I'm a Rock is the name of the song. Do you, do you remember the lyrics to that? You, see, you do. You could sing that. Can we get the, Miss Linda, can you get the, the tune for us right there so we can... <laughs> Sing that together. I have my books and my poetry to protect me. I'm shielded in my armor, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one, and no one touches me. I am a rock. I am an island. So we're coming to the end of the book of James, and there's a temptation in all of our hearts to isolate ourselves and to live as a rock, as an island. There's a temptation for all of us in this room to move away from community and to be isolated. Uh, the, the lyric of, of Simon and Garfunkel goes at the very heart of our sinful tendencies to isolate ourselves. So as we're coming to the end of the book of James, James is so countercultural because what he is saying to all of us is that we need one another. As, as Bonhoeffer said, that the life of the Christian is a life together. We need one another, as we talked about last week from James chapter 5. We, know, we need one another to pray for us. This week, as we come to the conclusion of the series, we need one another to know us, and we need one another to restore us. Look with me in your copy of God's Word at these final verses of the epistle of James. Verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another, Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
This message is directly connected to everything that I said last week in, in a very uh, helpful way. If you weren't with us last week, this is side B to the side A of last week. This is the, this is the, the just continuation, really, of one sermon here. So last week, we talked about how we need one another to pray for us, especially in the context of sickness and sin, healing, how do we work these things together from our finite perspective? I've spent 30 minutes talking about that. I just remind you as we think from verse 16 that we need one another to know us. This explains the power of confession in your life and in my life. Just to sum up a little bit of what I said last week and even drawing upon verse 16 here, it is important for you to be reminded that there is, is not, in James's words, an explicit connection between your unconfessed sin and sickness that you might be suffering with here. Every sickness doesn't have behind it unconfessed sin. But with that said, verse 16 says very clearly, therefore confess your sin to one another, pray for one another, that you may be healed. If I remind you in verse 15, it says, if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Again, just to flesh out what James is saying here, that conditional phrase, I, F, if, reminds us that behind every sickness isn't unconfessed sin, but unconfessed sin does have an effect upon us, not only spiritually, but emotionally and physically. While we would not want to make a direct correlation between sin and sickness, we don't need to blunt James's words here to, to, to remove ourselves from the fact that unconfessed sin does have, as we are holistically mind, we are spirit, we are body, it has an effect upon us. You can write in the margin of your Bible there a, a reference to Psalm 32, which really hits at the very thing that James is talking about here. Starting in verse 3, this is the words of David. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. When I didn't confess my sin, my, my bones were groaning. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Here is a believer who will not confess his sin, and there is, a, there is a conviction upon him that has an emotional and a physical weight. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged, verse 5 of Psalm 32, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Unconfessed sin has physical and emotional and spiritual ramifications for your life and for my life, for our church. When I was pastoring in Pascagoula, one of the things that occurred after Katrina was is that everyone had to become an expert in mold. I mean, we, you don't have to live through this to understand that when floodwaters come and however short they are in a home or a business, when that home isn't opened up, when the drywall isn't torn out, when the carpet isn't removed and you try to just live in that context, the, those, those mold spores begin to spread, especially in the dark recesses that don't have the light and the sun shining upon them, that don't have the disinfectant that is applied to them. And so you would hear people talk about the Katrina crud, the Katrina crud. It was a, it was a physical congestion, a physical exhaustion. You would hear people talking about their sinuses just being attacked 
in this very real way and struggling with, with allergies and struggling with living in the context of uh, mold-infested homes or, or working in those business places. You would hear people talk about physical exhaustion. You'd hear people talk about, I, I can't even get to one o'clock or two o'clock without feeling as if a Mack truck has just run me over. There was congestion. There was exhaustion that was just a part of living after the effects of, of that flood. And there is a sense in which that unconfessed sin has a lot of parallels to physical mold. Unconfessed sin, it spreads in the dark and the dingy places of our life. When we don't confess sin and when we isolate ourselves, that unconfessed sin, it begins to draw its tentacles around our spirit, and there are spiritual consequences. You know what the spiritual consequences look like? Well, it's spiritual exhaustion and spiritual congestion. What do I mean by that? Well, all of us have experienced this at times, where there's unconfessed sin, whether it be lust or greed or jealousy or pride or gluttony or materialism. We could just fill in the blanks, but when they begin to reign and when they're isolated in those dark places and we don't confess them and allow the remediation of the Holy Spirit to do its work in those dark places, we become spiritually exhausted. Uh, you might hear it said like this, I I'm just, I just don't really want to read my Bible. I really just don't want to pray. I, I really just don't get anything, get anything with quotes around it, get anything out of the service any longer. I don't get anything out of the preaching of God's word. I, I really don't want to serve any longer. Someone else can do that. Now, there could be other reasons. Certainly, uh, we don't want to oversimplify this case, but I assure you some of those words are said in those dark and dingy places where sin isn't confessed and there becomes a spiritual exhaustion that affects your spiritual life. But when that spiritual mold begins to grow, there's not only exhaustion, but there's congestion. We are called to be walking billboards. We're called to be salt and light. We're called to share the hope that resides inside of us. But oftentimes our witness is muted. Oftentimes our sharing is silenced. And it's silenced not just because of fear that we don't know exactly what to say, but oftentimes sin silences our sharing. One of the ways that you can know that it very well may be that spiritual mold, sinful mold is growing up in those dark recesses of your soul is that you really have no desire to share of the hope that resides inside of you. There is a sense in which that a person must walk in fellowship with the Lord to have a platform to share boldly what God has done for him or her and what God is doing for him and for her. That there can be a spiritual congestion that occurs in your life and in my life where our witness is muted by the sin that has grown up and is silencing our witness. So what is the remediation? What, what do we do with this mold that very well might grow in your heart or in my heart? Well, this is the great news of this. There is a disinfectant called the Holy Spirit that desires to cleanse you and to cleanse you from all of the spiritual mold that you might be tempted to have growing in those dark and dingy places of your soul. 
First John is this wonderful passage where he reminds us that if you confess your sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to do what? To, I love the word, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That no matter what you've thought, no matter what you've said, no matter where you've been, no matter what that litany of, of sin is, that when you take it to your heavenly father, he doesn't look at you as a principal who is disappointed or a teacher that is disappointed with his or her pupil, but he looks at you with arms open wide as the father welcomes the prodigal home as he runs out to meet him. He will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful truth, but not only from James chapter 5, verse 16, do we need to be reminded of that vertical plane of confession, but we need to be reminded of that horizontal plane of confession. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But notice also here horizontally that James says that we are called to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another. We need to think about how we could take this passage or maybe even how this passage has been taken out of context. James knows not of the whole theology that has emerged in, in some of the broader body of Christ where a person would come for confession and confess to a priest and desire to hear that priest provide absolution of their sins. This isn't a sense in which that person that you confess to can forgive. No, we uh, understand the priesthood of the believer. Only Christ can take away our sins. But there is a sense where it is helpful to us for others to hear our struggles so they can know us, pray for us, and hold us accountable. Galatians chapter 6 is a, a wonderful passage here, verse 2, where it says, Brothers, if anyone is called in transgression, you are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then verse 2, bear one another's burdens. This is one of the ways that we bear one another's burdens, by hearing a confession, by holding one another accountable, by praying specifically this is so foreign to how many of us live. Sometimes we, we're fearful of who we would trust with some of those real secret places of our life. Not anyone, and certainly not everyone, needs to know everything we think or we've done. That's certainly true, and that's certainly practical. But someone needs to know how we can be prayed for. Do you know Walker Percy? Walker Percy is one of my favorite writers. He, he was born really in Mountain Brook, Birmingham area. His uh, uncle was a famous lawyer in the Greenville, Mississippi area and wrote a book called Lanterns on the Levee. Walker Percy was one of the most celebrated Catholic authors of the 60s and 70s and 80s. And his famous book is called The Moviegoer, where it travels through the life of this isolated person by the name of Vince Bowling. And Percy very poignantly says, I've discovered that most people have no one to talk to, no one that is who really wants to listen. When it does at last dawn on a man that you really want to hear about his business, the look that comes over his face is something to see. In our Twitter age and in our Facebook age, we, we see the men and women who have fallen from positions of spiritual opportunity in ministry. Oftentimes, through the dark recesses of their life, 
coming to light. I've had, and you have known, of individuals who've been used mightily by God who have fallen from their ministry opportunities because of sin, sin that eventually will come forth. And in every time that I've been with a person and have listened to those stories and have uh, talked with them and the after effects of of the chaos of sin, one of the commonalities is, is no one knew about, and you can fill in the blank. Satan wants, not just for pastors, but for homemakers, for students, for retirees, for businessmen and women. He wants to isolate us and for us to live under the illusion that we can be a rock and that we can do it all by ourselves. Bonhoeffer would say in his book, Life Together, that sin demands to have a man by itself or by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. We need one another to pray for us. We need one another to know us. James gives us in this section of scripture this passing reference to the example of Elijah. Elijah We discover in 1 Kings 17 and 18 this story. He also, James does, uses extra-biblical accounts of the specific way that Elijah has a drought that comes and then has the floods that come. In 1 Kings 17 and 18, he prays for the drought to come. And three and a half years later, he prays for the rain to come. Now, this example isn't for any of us that are playing baseball and we've got an afternoon doubleheader and we see the forecast of the meteorologist and we've got to get these games in so it doesn't mess up. So this isn't this passage that says that we can prevent the rain from coming. But in this specific section, this is what God decided in his sovereignty to do for Elijah. Now, the point of this isn't about the meteorological patterns that Elijah experienced in 1 Kings 17 and 18, but rather it is the power of the God he prayed to. This is what's potent about this passage here, is that when God's people pray, we are praying to a powerful God who desires to intersect and to intervene in your life and in my life. And when we isolate ourselves, We miss the blessing of God's people praying for God's people to a God who is powerful and hears our prayers. We need one another to know us. We need one another to restore us. Will you look with me in verses 19 through 20? I love the way that James, as he comes to the end of his letter, unlike Paul, he he doesn't have a litany of people that he says, greet Aquila and Priscilla, no, no doesn't say anything about bring me my scrolls, none none of this. No chit-chatting at the end. No greet this person, give this holy kiss. He comes to the end and he comes with a couple of exclamation points that are hard to apply even in our context here. My brothers, if anyone, verse 19, among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Somebody asked me at the outset of preaching through the book of James, are you going to preach through all the book of James? And I said, yeah, I'll start in James chapter 1, and I'll go through uh, to James chapter 5. And they said, are you going to deal with that kind of 
weird stuff at the end about uh, that James is talking about here. Now, I don't know how you would classify this here, but there are a lot of question marks that any just honest believer would have as they walk through these passages here. First, we need to know who James is talking to. Notice in verse 19 that he addresses these believers as my brothers, among anyone among you. He's, he's talking to believers here. He really is, is providing the raw material for the great hymn, we need God to bind our wandering hearts to him. Why? Because we are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God that we love. So we as believers are called to be restored and we're called to be instruments of restoration to brothers and sisters in our life. Now, we don't take this out of context. James isn't saying that this is what saves us. Our works do not save us, but saving faith will always be accompanied by works. So it's important for us to understand, A, the result of restoration and B, steps to restoration. If you look at this passage here, this is where some of the murkiness of the end of James can be elusive to us. What does he mean, save him from death? Verse 20. Well, if we think about the context of James chapter 5, sin has physical consequences, and unconfessed sin can lead one at times to physical death. But you know, there, there is a spiritual death. There is a death of opportunities that sometimes can have when a believer goes through their life and there's unconfessed sin. Do you know the ramifications for that? And if Satan is a thief that desires to steal, kill, and destroy, I assure you that he desires the death of marriages. He desires the death of our witness. He desires the death of the joy of our salvation. While he can't steal our eternal security, boy, he desires to rob the joy of your salvation and my salvation. So he desires nothing less than death, the death of opportunities, the death of a career, the death of choices. And this occurs in unconfessed sin patterns. More than that, we have to ask whose sins are covered. Notice that it says the multitudes of sins that one would commit are being covered. Well, this could be the person who an individual goes to and says, you're on a path of, of wandering away from the faith. If that is received well, it could prevent a person from continuing to go down that wrong path. But more than that, the person that uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit has that kind of conversation, it would bring that person to not a realization of self-righteousness, but a holy dependency upon God's presence in their life. If, if you've ever been in a situation, and I know that you have, where you see the effects of sin, sin is always chaotic. It is always confusing. I have people that come to me, oftentimes a spouse of a person who is living in, in, in a pattern of sin, and that person would say, I don't even know who this person is. I don't even know my husband anymore. I don't know my wife anymore. It just seems so strange. And I always want to say, sin is chaotic. It is always chaotic. It is always muddy. It is always murky. It is always messy. And so when you come alongside of a person who's in that midst of a struggle, it should lead you not to self-righteous exaltation. Look at me. I'm not going in this path. Rather, it should bring you to your knees, uh, connecting you more closely to his presence to say, God, 
help me not go down a path of, of wandering from your truth and wandering from fellowship with you. I just think, honestly, as we come to the end of the book of James, that we just need to be honest. This is a very difficult passage to apply to our work life, to our church life, or to our family life. Some of that is because of the setting of, of what many of which we've grown up in. I, I love the South. I love my Mississippi heritage. Many of you love your Alabama heritage or Texas heritage or Louisiana or Tennessee, but there's something that is implicit in our growing up and in our nature and in our nurture that we implicitly want to go about life in this sort of buttery, syrupy, southern nicety. Uh, we like to not rock the boat. None of us I want to offend people. We want to keep the peace at all costs. And then James comes in here and he talks about bringing somebody back. He talks about uh, confronting somebody in the midst of their sin. And it very well may be that some of you have had these kinds of conversations and they haven't gone well. You have a family member that you're talking with about this, and then they say, well, I guess you're Mother Teresa now. I didn't know you were perfect here. And you just say, no, that's not my intent here. I'm not coming to you as someone who is self-righteous here. But God calls us, no matter how difficult these conversations are, he calls us to be faithful enough to love people that we're in community to have difficult conversations with. What are steps to restoration? We don't have a lot of time to think about this here, but I want to give you one passage and four words real quickly to think about this. I've already mentioned this passage, but in the margin of your Bible, Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, is a very helpful passage to help flesh out what James is saying at the end of this book. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Do you notice that descriptive phrase? Or that descriptive word, gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The very words that I was talking about just a moment ago. Verse 2, Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If we were to sum up four common themes in just four single words to help us navigate trying to live out this passage in our family life, or maybe even in our church life, I think we would start with these words. One, that we are called to live out this passage, number one, relationally. Relationally. That there are people in your life that you have deep relationships with, and you love them enough to want to have this conversation because you don't want marriages to be stolen you don't desire careers to be robbed. So you know them. Now, you don't know everyone like this. You certainly don't know everyone in the church like this. But it very well may be a son or a daughter. It very well may be a co-worker. It very well may be someone that you know well enough to love them and to be in a position where you would have the ability to have an honest conversation. Well, you can't do that with everyone. And guess what? You're not called to do that with everyone. I was in a line, uh, checkout line at Walmart a few months ago, and there was a very specific instance where there was a mother who was disciplining her child very um, publicly. And one person said to that mother, 
I don't think you should do it that way. That didn't go well. <laughs> I'm just going to go and tell you that. It was a very uncomfortable uh, checkout line for everybody that was there. And guess what? Yes, we need to intervene when there is very explicit physical abuse that is occurring. Yes, there are instances of that, but most of life isn't in that kind of extreme. Most of these conversations need to be conversations in relationships. Number two, they should be loving conversations, not judgmental, not holier-than-thou conversations, but out of a, a tremendous love, first and foremost, for God and for that person. And when that love comes forward, it comes out in the spirit of gentleness. Number three, it should be confessional. None of us in this room are, are immune from the tendencies to wander from the way that God has called us to. And so oftentimes it's very helpful for us to have these conversations out of an honest reflection upon our own life and seasons of our life where we've needed someone to help us through that process. And finally, they should be prayerful conversations. And obviously you know this, but none of these conversations need to be had in a moment of haste or anger or quickly. They should be bathed in prayer and thawed out with tremendous wisdom. And I can look back in my life and can I just tell you this as a pastor? I hope I will have people that will love me enough to have these kinds of conversations with me. Because in the past, I've had people love me enough to come to me and say, I don't know if you know this, I don't know if you've noticed this, I don't know if you're intentional. And those conversations in relationship, in love, confessional, and out of an honest care for me have benefited my own life. And I'm thankful that God has used those relationships for my sanctification. And can't you look back, most of us don't have a hundred examples of those, but can't you look back and say, thank God for that person who loved me enough to step out in faith and to have that kind of restoration conversation with me. Two weeks ago, I started the sermon with the example of my two boys, or three boys. I have three children. I need to remind myself of that. So I have three children, and I told you that one of the one frequent phrase that I've heard them say again and again and again is, I can do it all by myself. I can do it all by myself. And there is the spirit of a toddler in all of our hearts that will kind of raise up and say, I can do it all by myself. Well, James, as he's coming to the end of his epistle, he reminds us very clearly, we can't do it all by ourselves. We need one another to pray for us, to know us, and to restore us. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word, a word that speaks to our hearts. We pray that even now as we apply this word, we, apply, we would apply it specifically through the power and wisdom of your Holy Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen.